really teach the word, also model what a Christian ought to live. Lord, I pray that you would give them success. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Thing, a wonderful event that we should remember, that we should celebrate. 
And Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, I pray that you would move us to understand the gospel better. For anyone here who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you would use this, this passage, Lord, that you used your word, Lord, to draw them closer to yourself. They would understand the love and, and, and the grace that you offer through the blood of your, of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, for uh, City View Baptist Church, City View Church up in uh, Plainville, Avon area. Lord, we pray for that church. We pray for Scott McDowell and his and as he pastors that church, as they transition in leadership, Lord, as Scott takes on some, some roles outside of the church. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help that church to continue to grow. Lord, I pray that you would help that church to be faithful to your word. I pray for the elders of that church that they would lead the church well, Lord, and faithfully. Lord, we pray for the nation of Burkini Faso, Lord, a nation, Lord, that has suffered a tragedy in the last few weeks, Lord, as 12 Christians were killed going to church by Muslim fundamentalists, Lord. The thought of being killed going to church is such a foreign concept for us, Lord. We pray for our brothers and sisters in that nation, Lord. Lord, a nation that is riddled with animistic beliefs, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, that for those who claim to be followers of Christ, yet still go to the witch doctors, Lord, I pray that you would break them of that habit, Lord, that they would trust only in Christ alone. They would understand the power of Christ in their lives. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that the gospel would go forth in that nation, for the many Muslims that live there, that they would be turned and look to Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Lord, we praise you for this day. We praise you for this service, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to be praised and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I know I've mentioned this several times through other sermons uh, about uh, just a, a real love for the Lord of the Rings and enjoy the, the, the books and the stories. Uh, yeah, I'd have a look to give me a little uh, uh, hand up in the air for that. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great. I mean, like uh, I try to show it to my kids. They're a little too young for the movies, right? Only <laughs> battles uh, for a six and three year old. You kind of want to start them off, right? You really want to them to appreciate it, like you appreciate it. I, you know, one of my favorite of the three of uh, the Lord of the Rings is the first one. I love the Fellowship of the Rings, and I think I like certain uh, aspects to that particular story that I really like. And especially if you've read the books, like the the the, the love that Gandalf has for Frodo is, is really kind of shown in the books. And I want this idea of Abram being called out of his country, right, out of his father's home to a land he does not know. You're trying to think like where's some interesting. A connections, and you really you see that in in Lord of the Rings. You see that with Frodo and Sam leaving their, their leaving the Shire, leaving the world that they have come so accustomed to, into a land they've never journeyed into. Not even anyone that they know has ever journeyed to where Gandalf is sending them to this unfamiliar place, this void. And I don't want to read too much, but uh, I do want to read a few um, quotes from the book. Like there's, you know, so when Frodo realizes that that he that um, that re realizes about the ring, and Gandalf tells him that the significance of the ring that Bilbo had, you can see this terror that comes into Frodo's heart and mind. He's like, the ring can't stay here. It can't stay in the Shire. If if the enemy is going to come and take it, they'll come here and they'll destroy this world that I love. They'll destroy the home that I love. 
And he realizes he has to leave. He has to take it. He even says, I'm fleeing from danger into danger, he says. But he has to go. He has to take. It's almost like Gandalf has called him to leave his home and to go into this unfamiliar land. Of course, you know from the story that Sam, Sam goes with him. And he even says that, there's a quote from the book, he says, The winds in the west, if we go to the other side of the hill, we shall find a spot that is sheltered and snug enough, sir. There's a dry firewood just ahead. If I remember rightly, Sam knew the land well within 20 miles of Hobbiton, but that was the limit of his geography, it says. Basically, he knew every nut and cranny of his town. He knew every nut and cranny of his, of his land that he lived in, being a gardener. This says a little bit later on, Pippin is saying, The road goes on forever, but I can't without a rest. It's a high time for lunch. He sat down on the bank of the side of the road and looked away east into the haze, beyond which lay the river and the end of the shire, in which he had spent all of his life. Sam stood by him. His round eyes were wide open, for, the, for, the, for he was looking across lands he had never seen to a new horizon. Think of that. You think, you think of these characters in this story. We can almost think they're just characters in a fictional story. But we can relate to this idea of them looking into areas they had never, ever <coughs> Right? You can almost see a fear, a, a sense of courage that will take them to take the next step. It says before that they, they went to the end of the lane and they opened the gates, right? And they walked down the road. Like This idea that they took their straps of their bags, they tightened them. And then walk through the gate into this unfamiliar land that they have been called to go into. And it's not like they are doing this out of a wish. They're not doing this because they're sick and tired of their hometown. They're leaving because they have to. They've been called to do a great task, which is to take the ring and destroy it, right? So I say that because it gives us an idea of what maybe Abram was thinking and feeling when God called him out of his country. Just to provide a little bit of context before, because we haven't studied Genesis 1 through 11. So just kind of give a little bit of context for those who are maybe not familiar with Genesis chapter 12. But we started in Genesis 1 and 3, right? You, you see the garden, and God created the world, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden. And he gave them a, a task to keep and, and guard the garden. Uh, and then they, they sinned against God. They ate of the fruit because the serpent tempted them, and they were kicked out of the garden. Uh, we see Cain and Abel, when Cain killed his brother Abel and brought murder and death into the world. Um, we have later on Noah and his family, uh, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. There's a flood that covers the earth and destroys all of mankind. Only Noah and his family survived through God's provision of the ark. And then in chapter 11 of Genesis, we get the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, you have all the nations that have come out of the three sons of Noah. And we have the, 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 the kind of the table of nations in chapter 10. They, have, they all live near each other. They've gathered together to build a tower to the Lord to show how great they are. And what does God do? He, he scatters their, their languages. He, he sees the, the, the evil in their hearts. And, he, and, he can, and they're gathering together to build this tower in defiance of God. And so God spread, spread their languages. He, gave, he scattered them and, and made them speak different languages. It says in Genesis 11, 7 through 8, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. 
So they have a scattering of people in different regions and different lands. Then we have the individual of Terah. Terah is Abram's father. He took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sari, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together <coughs> from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Cana. When they, got, they came to Haran, they settled there. So we have this kind of lead up to the call of Abram to leave his land, to go to the land of Canaan. The guy calls him to leave his country. We know a little bit, we, we don't get a lot of details of when, where this happens, right? When does, where does God call Abram to Canaan? Uh, um, Genesis 15, 7, we see, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and the Chaldeans, as if seeing that, that God called Abram out of Ur to go to Canaan. But we have this, this sense that God, the, the, the story here, this this conversation with God and Abram in Genesis chapter 12 happens in Haran, not in Earth. Even, uh, even Stephen, when he, in Acts 7, verse 2, he said, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. So it's Isaiah that maybe Abram got this calling while still in Earth. They journeyed to Haran. They settled there for an extended amount of time, maybe years, maybe decades. And then they moved on to Canaan. Maybe Haran brought his family to Haran and he settled there. Maybe Haran was the original home of his clan. They were herdsmen, they were shepherds, they traveled as the need for open pasture arose. So Haran then may have been their home and homestead. And they drifted to Ur, which had commercial and religious connections to Haran. And then Terah returned north with his family, as if there's a connection between Ur and Haran that when God calls Abram out of his land, that his land and the place that he knew well was not Ur, but Haran. So the story begins with Abram and Haran. His family has settled there. We don't know how long they've lived there. But I think what, what's probably happened is his family was from that area. He knew that area very well. So I want to talk about four different ways by which Jesus is the true and better Abram. So first, number one is the call to leave the familiar. The call to leave the familiar. It says in verse 1 here, chapter 12, that, he, that the Lord said to, him, to Abram, Go out, leave, depart from your, your land. You see this repetition of your land, your relatives, your father's house. Leave what is yours, your personal possession, to go to a land that is unfamiliar to you. To leave the land of your tribe and your people. We live in a world where we're not as connected to the land as they were, right? It, even uh, with, before this, in Genesis chapter 10, you see when they talk about the different people that came from Noah's family, they even mentioned the land that they lived in. It says in verse 5 of chapter 10, from these descendants, the peoples of the coast and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with their own language. And this repetition continues in, in verse 10 through 11, verse 20, and verse 31, that these group of people as they were scattered after the Tower of Babel, they settled in these particular lands. That the people were associated with the places that they dwelt or resided in. 
So there's an understanding that leaving your land was quite significant. It was, you would never, if you dwelled or you resided in a place, to leave the land would be a very significant thing. To leave the particular place inhabited by particular people. You think about the fall festival parade. Like it was the first time we went to the parade this year. And uh, you're, you're, if you're like some person who was never from Evansville, you, you wouldn't understand why the certain things that were showcased in the, in the parade. Parades are great because what do they do? Let's say like, small town parades, they, they show or display particular, particular people and the particular place in which they dwell, right? You think of the tractors and the clubs and the dance studios and the schools and the bands that are associated. They represent a people of a particular place. People identify with the land, with the place. Uh, this is from Wendell Berry, and he wrote, The Indians did, of course, experience movement of population, but in general, their relation to place was based upon old usage and associations, upon inherited memory, traditions, and tradition. The land was their homeland. We think of our homeland as simply our house and where our family dwells. The Indians especially dwelt, they understood the importance of the land. And so God is calling Abram and his family, who were connected to the land, it was their home. He probably knew the land deeply, felt somewhat connected to the dirt and trees that marked his home. And God calls him to leave it. He also calls him to leave his relatives, the land of his wider family, his kinfolk, his relatives, those who he grew up around. Similar to, to, we think of like different families in Evansville who live near their entire family, right? Their aunts, their uncles, their cousins. They all live near each other. They all have holidays together. Birthday parties for nephews and cousins and holiday dinners with several generations. We understand this idea of families getting together often. That your family is more than just your mom and your dad and your, and your brothers and sisters, but also your aunts and your uncles and your grandparents and your cousins. All of you are together, and Abram understood that and experienced that. God calls him out of his father's house. It gets a lot more, more personal, doesn't it? From the land to, to, your, to your, your relatives and then to your father's house. Very, a lot more particular here. Wives, unmarried daughters, his sons and their dependents were all members of the father's household. A married daughter would assimilate into the husband's household system. Once their father died, sons would divide their father's wealth and form their own households. So when your father died, you would start your own household near the rest of your relatives in the land. So he tells them to leave his actual father. He's strongly identified with his father's home. We see in 1 Samuel 17.25, the king will also make the family of that man's father exempt from paying taxes in Israel. Your connection to your father's house was very intimate. Even a blessing on one person, individual, would be the blessing of the entire father's household. Your actions had implications on your entire family. By leaving his father's home, Abram cut himself off from the security and wealth of his father's home. And leaving and going to a land that he was unfamiliar with, going to a land that he had no connection to whatsoever, he would be basically cutting himself off from the father's wealth and his security. To the land that I will show you. He has no GPS system. He has nothing to go off of, of where he is going. 
Only God is his GPS. He has no other <coughs> compass but God to follow to his unknown and unfamiliar land. But he trusts God's promise to give him a better land than the one he's living. What does this have to do with Christmas, right? You're probably asking yourself, what does this have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with Jesus? In John 17, 5, Jesus says, With the glory I had with you before the world existed, that Jesus, and we talked about this last week, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he has always known relationship and connection to his Father for eternity. John 1, 3, all things were created through him, and apart from him, there, nothing was created that has been created. Jesus says, before Abraham, I was, in John 8, 58. In Philippians 2, 6, he understood that he, he had equality with God in all things, but didn't exploit that equality. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impression of his nature. In John 17, we see the oneness with God that Christ shared with the Father, he even prays that the church would have the same oneness that he has shared for eternity with his Father. But what does Jesus, why is that important? What does it have connection with Abram? Because yes, Abram left an unfamiliar, uh, <coughs> a familiar land to, into an unfamiliar land, but Christ Jesus left his complete unity with Christ, God for eternity to take on flesh. He emptied himself in Philippians 2.7. Not explaining his relationship with his father, his divine nature for his own gain, to increase his name, but assuming the form of a servant and died, which he was given the name above every name. After making purifications of sin, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is the true and better Abraham because he left the glory of the heavenly realm with his father to establish a new people through himself. <clears throat> you think of Jesus on the cross, right? What are some interesting statements that Jesus makes on the cross? You see the deeply grieved, the, the nature that Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That We, we may brush through that, that, that quote that Jesus makes on the cross. What is he saying? He sees the abandonment, he feels the abandonment of God on him because he has taken on sin. This was the calling of of, of Christ's life by his Father, to leave and drink the cup of God's wrath on, on his sins, to be abandoned by his Father on the cross, to descend placed upon him, and to die, so that we may be blessed. Jesus is a true and better Abraham because he accepted God's calling to be an offering for your sins. He accepted <coughs> that calling to be an offering for your sins, to leave heaven and to come home to earth and take on flesh, humble himself as a servant, and to die on the cross, be an offering for your sins. The second way that Jesus is a true and better Abraham is the promise of a new people. So God tells Abraham to, Abram to leave his home, to leave where he is so accustomed to, to go to this new land that he will show him. And now God presents all these promises. So you see this repetition of I, God's initiating a promise, a blessing to Abram. See this repetition, this structure, I will make you, I will bless you, I will make your name great. This I in you, this, that God is initiating this. Abram's not, hey, i got a great idea, God. Why don't I leave my land, come to Cana, and you bless me and make me a great nation. That's not what's happening. God is initiating this completely. And Abram is receiving this. He says, I will make you a great nation. When you think of nation, you're not thinking there's just one or two kids, are you? You're thinking of a multitude of people. 
that share a same heritage, a same history, a same tradition. Abram has no children. He is 75 years old and has no children. Him and his wife, Sarah, have no children. She is barren. She, she, they have not produced any children, yet God tells Abram that he will be the father of, of a great nation. He doesn't even have any children. How can he possibly be the father of a nation? Offspring and children. We, we learn later on in chapter 17 that it wasn't until he was 100 years old and his wife 90 years old that a child was actually given. So he had to wait 25 years for the promise to actually be fulfilled. This is completely outside his control. Sure, Abram by himself, it's, it's plausible that he could become a great, wealthy man. He could increase his name and his fame by, by battle or by uh, uh, business or whatever it is. He could do this on his own. But when it comes to the children, that's completely outside his control. The promise of being a father of a great nation is substantial. A nation, not simply a family or a household, something greater than Noah or his own father. And he says that he was going to bless him with material wealth. He's going to bless him. And we see later on in Genesis that, that, that Isaac, his son, had many livestock and precious metals. That his family did grow in wealth. That his possessions grew. You know, in, chapter, in the same chapter, verse 5, that he had many possessions, all the blessings that he accumulated, and he, he took all his family and he journeyed from here and into Canaan. We know of, of the report of his wealth when, when, when the uh, servant of his went up to his family to find a wife for Isaac, he told Rebekah of the great wealth that Abraham, Isaac's father, had. He had a lot of livestock that Pharaoh gave him in Genesis chapter, chapter 12, verse 16. He, he, Pharaoh gave him all this livestock Become a very wealthy man when he moved to Canaan. His name was great. God will make Abram's name great. Abraham, the father of many. Even Jews, Christians, and Muslims can associate with Abraham as their father. Many people associate themselves with Abraham. So he became a famous person. We still talk about him today. So his name was great. And God said, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. The purpose of the call of Abram is to bless. And not just to bless Abram, but to bless the world. God calls Abram to bless him individually and his offspring, but also to bless others. The larger plan of God is to bless the world through Abram's call. Leave so that I can bless the world. Leave your hometown and go to Canaan so that I can bless the world. God's vision is far larger than just Abram. The greater plan is to use Abram for whatever reason. There's nothing special about Abram, but he uses him anyways to bless all the nations. What does this have to do with Jesus? Because Jesus is the father of a great nation as well. The Lord of a great nation. The savior of a great nation. Uh, for some of you, I know Adam read it, but I wrote an article for our, our blog and our website about Christ's baptism. I was thinking about this this week. Why does Jesus get baptized? Right? Why does he get baptized? I don't know if you've ever had this thought before. Think about it. He's back, John is baptizing what? A baptism of repentance. Well, Jesus has no reason to repent. He's never sinned. So why does Jesus become baptized? Why does he submit himself to baptism? And he says in Matthew 3.15, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
So what does he do? He's baptized in John's baptism to identify with fallen humanity in the baptismal waters. He identifies himself with sinners mm. through his baptism. Through him, he will provide for their righteousness. Why? Because baptism does not make you righteous. Going to John the Baptist in the Jordan River did not make those people righteous. What made them righteous? Their faith in the one who also was baptized with them. His identification with sinners to what? To count them as righteous. To make them righteous through himself. Justified not by circumcision, but by their identification with the one who left heaven and took on flesh, and identified with sinners in baptism, so that he may fulfill all righteousness for a new people. A new people created through himself. But now in Christ Jesus, this is Ephesians 2, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility, in this flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he may create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he may reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Jesus is a true and better Abraham, who identified with all sinners in his baptism and created a new people and united them not by creed, or family ties, or by circumcision, but through his blood. Then this new people, the church, do not share a land or a common bloodline. They share a faith in the same Lord who has conquered sin and death. He's true and better than Abraham, right? Abraham left Haran, and yes, he was the father of many nations, but that connection to Abraham did not make people righteous. Only Christ, and the faith in him, and your identification with Christ, counts you and makes you righteous. The third point, third way that Jesus is better than Abraham, we see later on that, that Abram does leave in verse 4. He leaves his homeland. He goes and journeys down to Canaan. And it says something interesting here in uh, verse 8. From there he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent. Why is that significant? What's so significant about Abram pitching a tent? Some of y'all, a few weeks ago, y'all pitched a tent, right? Y'all can't. What's so significant about this? Abram was 75 years old. He left. He took his wife, his nephew, and all his possessions. You think of like, uh, I don't know if you've ever moved from one city to the next, or if you moved from one state to the next. I've spent a lot of my life moving, because my dad just, every three years, wants to move somewhere different, and somebody lives somewhere different. But I remember when I went to Sweden, I had all my possessions for like two bags, right? Because I was a single guy. I just graduated from college. I didn't have a lot. But then I, I kind of fast forward to when me and my wife moved from Louisville to Evansville. We had a big truck full of stuff, right? But we didn't have any kids, so it, was like a, it wasn't like one of those big full of trucks. And so we had our furniture and our clothes and stuff. We didn't have a lot of possessions. We just had an apartment. And then when we moved from the east side to the west side, we had two kids. We just had one kid. Uh, and so we had a lot more stuff that we brought over. We actually hired a moving company. We had so much more stuff to our new house, right? You move all your possessions and everything you have to a new place. And you see this like kind of, even if it's just a few uh, miles over, you have this big caravan of stuff you're bringing with you. And you see Abram moving and taking all this stuff. And he pitches a tent. He, set up, he sets up camp near Bethel. And what, what's significant about this? Well, because Christ is true and better than Abraham. Why? Because he pitches his tent amongst us. He camps with us. It says in John 1.14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son. Think of dwelt as he pitched his tent with us. 
What's so significant about that? He dwelt amongst us. He pitches his tent near us. He sojourned with man. His glory was seen. What does Jesus say in Luke 9? It says, Foxes have den and birds of the sky have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He ate, uh, um, uh, didn't talk about this earlier, he ate with sinners. He identified with them in his baptism. He lived among the world. He was a neighbor to the sick, the lowly, and the anxious. While Abram pitched his tent in a land that his offspring would soon possess, Jesus pitched a tent among those who were enemies of God and lived among them and died for them. Is that those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick? I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He lived among the sinners. He pitched his tent with those who were enemies of his own father. Abram didn't do that. <coughs> Jesus is true and better than Abraham because he resided with those who came to save. The last one is God cut a covenant with us through his son. You see, this is Genesis 15, so I'm going to move to another chapter here just, just shortly. But we see that later on, that time had gone by, and Abram still didn't have a son. He was still sojourning. He was still pitching his tent. He didn't have a land of his own. He didn't have a child of his own. He didn't have an inheritance that he was, he was giving over. He was no great nation. He was no great. He, he'd grown in fame. He'd grown in, in wealth. But he didn't have a child. So he says in 15, he says, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He's like, how am I going to know? Yeah, you promised it to me, but how am I going to know? What faith am I going to put myself, what am I going to put my faith in that I know that you will provide what you promised? He wants confirmation of the promise. Tangible evidence of God's intentions. God responded with what? Presentation. He presented as something. He, he tells Abram in 15, he says, um, in verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He says, bring me these things. God tells Abram this. So Abram goes and gets it. Brings all these to him, and he cuts them in half. He lays the pieces opposite of each other, and he did not cut the birds in half. He cuts these animals. He, he severely you know, chops them in half. He sets them apart. We don't know why he does this. Back in the day, the reason why he cut this is that back in the day, you would cut a covenant. So if you were going to buy something from someone else, you were going to do a, an agreement with someone, you would cut something, like an animal. And you would walk through that animal together as you were having this, this kind of a, an agreement, a binding agreement between two parties. You would cut a covenant. Animals were cut into two, and the parties would walk in between them as a representation of solidarity and the hope for both Entrance being fulfilled through the covenant. You would cut the covenant. We know later on in Jeremiah 34, 18, a little bit more about this. As for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces. So if you would break the covenant, basically the view was that you would be like the animals cut in half if you ever broke the agreement. So we see later on in 15 that night has come, that, that it, sundown had happened, the sun has set it, and then uh, a smoking fire pit and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. That was the presence of God walking through those animals, making a covenant with Abram. And Abram does not walk through the severe pieces, 
He is then under an obligation to make the promise a reality. That God, God walks through the severe pieces. He's under a binding covenant to fulfill his promises. And on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, he, I will give this land to your offsprings. The significance with this is that when God made a covenant with us, he doesn't take animals and severe them and cut them in half, does he? He breaks his own son. Yet Christ was severed, and God walked in the middle to make a covenant with you. He promised to write his law on your heart. He promised to be your God, that, he would be, that you would be his people, that, he would know, that you would know him from the least to the greatest. He says, for I will forgive their iniquities and never again remember their sins. How will, he, how will we know? How will we know that the Lord will fulfill his promises? Romans 8, 31 through 32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will we not also with him grant us everything? We know that God will fulfill his promises is because he broke his own son, walked in the middle of it, and said, I will stand by this promise. And when we ever think, well, how do I know God's going to fulfill his promise? We look to the cross, where God makes his covenant with us. He grounded the promise of salvation by cutting a covenant through the body of the son and walking through it, confirming his intentions to save us to make us his people, to transform us that we may know him and keep his law. Jesus is true and better than Abraham because he became the severe pieces of which God walked through to show God's dedication to your salvation and to fulfill his promises to you. That's how serious Jesus God is. That's why his intentions are pure, because he even broke his own son so that your, his promises will be known and that you will feel confident in knowing that he will fulfill those promises. So I want to end with this. The call of faith. But Abram was called to go and he had faith and trusted God. One of the things about Lord of the Rings in that same setting I mentioned earlier is Gandalf and his response to Frodo's willingness to go. He says, Hobbits are quite remarkable people. Remarkable creatures. You feel like you know everything about them, and then they do something surprising, right? And what, what Gandalf is basically saying is, is, look at the courage of these hobbits. Look at, that, look at their faith. So, God calls us to put our faith. God calls us to trust Him. God calls us to, to do things that some, somewhat are uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And so what, what do we hold on to? How do we know that God will sustain us? How do we know that God will, um, that we will be successful in what we do? We look to the cross. We trust in the cross. I, I love Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read this and then we'll end with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. It's a great passage to, to memorize, to keep you grounded. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy laid before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do I know? How do I know? Why, why should I put my faith in God? How do I know that his promises will be fulfilled? How do I know this? And when we look to, we look to the cross of Christ. That is the witness of our hope. Amen. It testifies. 
Every time we think of the cross, it testifies that God does fulfill His promises. Amen. That He stands by His word. He stands by His covenants. He stands by His promises. That He even spared His own Son. Why would He not give you everything? Look to the cross and believe in the promises of God. That's why Jesus is the true and better Abraham. That's why the, this, 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 this discussion and this, this important topic is so important to Christmas. As we look to Jesus in the manger and says, here is the evidence that God will fulfill his promises. That's right. Let's pray. So Lord, I am so thankful for your word. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that it's... Uh, the, there's, the, there's, there's characters in this in this in this word in, in your in the Bible, Lord, that uh, you call to different things. You call them to do things like you called Abram to do, to lead to what is familiar, to go into the unfamiliar. Lord, that you blessed him because he was faithful to you. And Lord, we we look to our own life, Lord. We think about our callings and what you've called us to do. You've called us to make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I commanded you. You've called us, Lord, to be faithful to you, to be to walk worthy of the gospel. Lord, you've called us to love our enemies. You've called us to love one another. You call us to put our faith and trust in you, Lord. And we ask sometimes, how do we know, Lord, that you will fulfill your promises? How do we know, Lord, that you will do what you say? Lord, may our gaze be immediately gazed upon the cross. May we see the cross as the witness, the testimony, Lord, of your faithfulness to us. You sent Jesus Christ in the world, the true and better Abraham, the true and better Adam, to be the sacrifice for our sins, to be the offering for our sins, Lord, that we may have a relationship, that we may be reconciled to you, that we may have be a part of a new people, be children of God, sons and daughters of God. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ, but that they would trust you, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would answer the call of faith, and that they would respond and trust in you. Lord, for anyone here, Lord, who are believers, but they're struggling, Lord, and, and sinful habits, and, and being really snared down, as the Hebrew says, by the weight of, of their sin, Lord, and just the hindrance of the things that they struggle with, Lord, may they look to the cross, Lord, as the hope that the promises that you make in your word are not just empty promises, Lord, but that you, that you will fulfill them, and you will fill them in their own life. Mm. Lord, we thank you, Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. If I can uh, get some, I want you to come up, and uh, Adam, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, the way that we're, we're going to do this is a little different than we've done in the past. Um, 